Uh, today we continue on our Sermon on the Mount study. And today's going to be hard. We're going to encounter a tremendously misunderstood passage. Uh, one single sentence that we're going to look at today is being weaponized by our popular culture to justify all kind of behavior, I think, that is against the purity and holiness of God. As your pastor, I personally believe the discussion we're going to have today is one of the most important discussions we can have. Um, because this is a battle, and we must be ready to fight. I want to start with this passage, or this is a statement by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was talking about how we discuss doctrine. And he said, I profess, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So imagine I have a wall, and on the other side of the wall is the enemy, and I'm trying not to let him breach my wall. But let's say on the far right end of the wall, they knock a hole and they start running through that wall. If I continue to defend this side of the wall, and I don't try to stop them from breaching that side of the wall, Martin Luther's saying, I'm not engaged in battle at all. And so in the same way, if we as Christians have what I would say cultural issues we just don't address because we're scared of the battle, we're not really in the battle. So where is the battle today? I think it's on one verse. I think it's Matthew 7.1. So if you can turn there, that's our continuation in the Sermon on the Mount series. And I believe it is here we must make a stand. We need to understand it. And then stand on our convictions accordingly. It's easy to declare God loves you. Honestly, it's very easy to say that. No one in America will disagree. No one will be offended if I tell them about God's unconditional love. It takes no courage to say something people want to hear. But the way you can tell where the battle is being fought is the place where people get hostile and defensive. It's the place where people get upset. Even after the first service, I had a couple people come up and talk to me about this. And that's a good thing, because that's where the battle rages. Or you could say it like this, when you touch a nerve, you know you found a cavity. In the one area, as a pastor, that I have received pushback more than any other area in the last five to ten years is based on this question, in a lot of different ways, but it's this question, can I judge others? Am I allowed to judge others? As followers of Jesus, are we allowed to voice our opinions and make honest judgments about sinful behavior, about destructive ideas or childish habits or even heretical beliefs of others? Am I allowed to? Or 
Should we keep our negative opinions to ourselves and then declare in the nicest, sugary tones, God loves you and so do I. And you blink your eyes like that. Derek knows who I'm talking about. I have, um, I have been told, I have been told a number of times that any sort of contentious discussion, like if I get into an argument, I got to be careful because it might ruin the testimony of Jesus. So don't argue. Don't disagree. Because you want people coming to Christ, don't you? And isn't the highest Christian ideal, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? That's not always true. And I'm not necessarily sure that's our calling. So we're going to read through Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and we're going to diagnose the problem and then deal with the correct interpretation of what Jesus is actually saying here. So verse 1. Judge not or you too will be judged. The NIV says, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, or some versions say log, that's stuck in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 6 says this, do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So that's what we're going to look at. But to begin, we need to define terms. It's important to understand words. And the first term we need to define is what does the word judge mean? The word judge is like my junk drawer in the kitchen. It collects all kind of different verbs that we use the word judge. And some of these Words we do every single day. We do it all the time. And so to say judge not, it's kind of like saying don't live, in other words. Let me show you what I mean. The first definition of judge means to judge or to sift. The good from the bad, which is a normal process. So if I want a good apple, and I go to the store, and I don't want a sour apple or a rotten apple, I make judgments. That's good, I'm going to take that. The word also means to evaluate what decisions for me are good, better, and best, specifically when it comes to the will of God. Philippians 1.10 says, we need to know what's best. That's called wisdom. Wisdom requires judging. To judge is to select a preference of my own. It's a matter of personal taste or choice or opinion. Here's a story about a son whose mother did not like the girlfriends he kept bringing home. He kept bringing home these girls, and she didn't like them, girl after girl. So the son went to his friend and said, what do I do? My mother does not like my girlfriend. And his friend said, you need to get a girl that's just like your mom. So he did. But there's a problem. He went to his friend. He said, I found a lady that's just like my mom. She thought like my mom. She looked like my mom. She even acted like my mom. And the friend said, did your mom like her? Yes, she loved her. The problem is my dad couldn't stand her. Next word, 
Judge means to hear a case, to weigh the evidence, and to render a verdict. We are called to be moral. Morality takes judgment that renders a verdict. And isn't the law of the Lord written on every human heart? But then the final word for judge, and this is the one I think specifically Jesus is talking about here, is to condemn, to write someone off, to quit extending mercy, to say, I'm done, I'm done with you, I've had it, that's it. So those are the definitions, and judge can mean a lot of different things. So it matters how we define it, and it matters who defines it, because who defines it often defines it the way they want to. For instance, how does our culture define it? What does our culture say? Well, they would read Matthew 7, 1, and it says, Judge not, so judge not. Judge not. Judge not. Judge not what? Anything and everything. Don't judge anything. Everything goes. And we must take the Bible at face value, right? Yep. Okay, so judge not. And if the word judge means all of the definitions, and it means anything goes and everything goes, that must mean we can never evaluate. We can never determine if something someone does is right or wrong. We must never weigh the evidence of people's choices, ever. And we can never speak a word of condemnation. Never. Ever. In other words, people can be, can love, can become, can proclaim anything they want, and you must not judge them no matter what. This past week I was listening to an LGBTQ minister online and I was listening to one of their sermons. It's a strange sermon, but the text they use to, to uh, jump off from in their sermon is this. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now the way they define freedom is not necessarily the contextual word for freedom. To them, freedom was anything you want can be yours. You can transform yourself. You can self-create. You can imagine anything possible. And whatever you imagine, there's no limitations, there's no law, and there's no critics. And they say it like this. You be you. And they usually smile like that. You just be you. Well, if we take this interpretation seriously, the implications are dreadful. They're dreadful. We no longer will have a right to say someone's choice is ever wrong, regardless of how silly, how wicked, how destructive, how disgusting, or how evil it is. You want to wear a princess dress to a job interview while waving a magic wand? More power to you. That's a great idea. Go for it. You want to uh, be a pedophile and date four-year-old boys? Why not? Why not? You want to marry a horse? <laughs> That's your choice. Judge not. Which means no criticism and no condemnation. This reasoning also means the word sin has been rendered null and void. It doesn't mean anything. And should be replaced with nicer sounding words. Words like instead of saying I sinned, I should say I made a mistake or I committed an oopsie. Or I'm simply expressing my own reality. In other words, when, you're, when you no longer judge, 
You completely turn bad behavior good because in the end, I'm just being me. And Isaiah says something about that. You know it's going to get near the end times when good become, bad becomes good and good becomes bad? What is the good? Being critical, but that's bad now. Philosophically, this is called the triumph of postmodernity. When I first entered ministry in the late 1990s, I read a lot of books warning pastors and youth pastors about the rise of postmodernism in pop culture. They were warning that the youth were going to have to deal with this like a tsunami. And at the time, the warning sounded like, oh, that's just highfalutin talk, high philosophy. You know, nothing to be worried about. But as a result, no one took it seriously. And because no one took it seriously, it is no longer a joke. Postmodernism has turned into our country's standard of truth. It is. And it's the church's nightmare. Because it set the cultural conversations on its head in two areas. Number one is the issue of tolerance. It's changed the definition of tolerance. Tolerance used to mean be patient and long-suffering with those you disagree with. That's what it meant. Now, postmodernism defines tolerance where no one has a right to criticize someone else's personal choices, decisions, debauched urges, sexual preferences, clothing trends, lipstick color, or even how an Olympic athlete representing America disregards the flag. We're not allowed to talk about it. Not only must we no longer criticize, but postmodernism tells us we must also approve and celebrate it. That's where it's gone. So, let's look at it like this. So if a real person named Linda wanted to marry a roller coaster, which really happened, we can't shake our heads and call Linda crazy. No. Instead, we must attend her wedding and buy a gift for a happy couple. What do you buy for a roller coaster for wedding? WD-40, of course. That's what you buy there. So if a British man, and this has truly happened last week in the news, so if a British man named Ali wants to have plastic surgery on his eyes so he will look Korean, we need to show him compassion. And if we're really loving, we should insist that the government pay for that surgery. That's real love. Tolerance to me is like waving and wishing Godspeed to the person who's just put his car in first gear as he drives off the cliff. That's tolerance. We're not allowed to warn him about the bottom of the cliff because that might hurt his, that might hurt his, his being, his precious self. I can't offend that. Also, you have this idea of pluralism that postmodernity has pushed on us. And pluralism is just this teaching where there no longer is any superior truth to teach because all truths are equal. The problem, postmodernists say, is if you define truth as something that is true, that means other things that contradict it, you're saying, are not true, and we can't have that because our culture won't let you tell anybody they're wrong anymore. That's the point. It is considered arrogant. Unloving to believe that you might be right while others are wrong. 
Recently, I had a person ask me about this meme. Last month was Pride Month, and they sent me this meme, and they were mad about this meme, and this meme has been passed all around social media. And uh, this meme really received a lot of likes, but it perfectly captures this whole idea of judge not and this idea of postmodernistic thought. I'd rather be excluded for who I include than be included for who I exclude. If you read between the lines, it's an attack on the people who believe truth because truth by its nature excludes. And even deeper, it's really going after Christians who are against what I would say homosexuality and other things and Christians who believe that the gospel is exclusive for those who accept it by faith. Because the gospel is exclusive. We just read that when we did communion. But this meme encourages people not to be part of those who exclude. In fact, it is inferring that if we are loving people, we must exclude the excluders. But if I exclude the excluders, am I not excluding? So by making this statement, I'm actually erasing myself. See, because you could say it like this. In other words, let's not include those who exclude. Question, isn't that exclusion? Yes, that's the point. Everybody judges everything all the time. To say, judge not, it's not meaning don't judge. If it was, then verse 6 would make no sense. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. It would be self-contradictory. Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. So... How do I know if someone's a dog or a pig if I don't judge them? Hmm. Interesting. So our job is not to fall for this. Our job is to stand strong in what we know Scripture teaches is true. And don't fall into the, what I would call the pluralism trap because people are buying into it every day. Our job is to take Jesus at his word and Take what he has to say seriously. I just don't think people really want to know what Jesus says, but that's our job. What is Jesus saying here? What does he mean? Let's read verses 1 and 2 again because the idea is really wrapped up in that. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then go to verse 5. He says, you hypocrites... First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that judgment's natural. You will judge, just judge the right way. You can't help but judge. So his point is this. When you do it, when you judge, when you evaluate, when you criticize, when you have an issue with someone, Make sure you're careful about how you do it. That's his point. And you've got to be careful for two reasons. The first reason is because there lives somebody who's far more important than you are when it comes to the case of judging. So in verse 1, he says, don't judge or you too will be judged. You'll be judged. Verse 2, same way you judge, you'll be judged. At the end of verse 2, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you or you will be judged. So three times he's saying, someone's going to judge you. Who? Who's going to judge you? 
Some people say, well, if you treat people this way, it's called the principle of reciprocity, they'll treat you the same way. There's a little bit of that. But most scholars would say what he's talking about is be careful how you judge others because God's watching and he will use the same standards against you. That's scary. Do you know Romans 2 talks about that? It's talking to people who don't believe in God and God says, oh, you have a law. You have a law. I'm going to hold you to the law or the standards you hold to others. So if you don't like it when people lie to you, if you've ever lied, you're guilty to your own standards. There is some of that going on. But I think more importantly what's going on is God will judge. Look at Matthew 5.22. It's very clear. It's kind of the same idea. And some scholars believe that 7.1 has 5.22 in mind. I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, be in dangers of the fires of hell. So if I call someone a fool, who's watching me and is going to judge me for that? God. And then you go to 7.22 of Matthew. It's the same idea. Matthew 7.22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. That's judgment too. So God's the judge. And he's watching everything we do and keeping accounts. That's the point. So be very, very careful how you judge. Some people will say this is a general principle of reciprocity. I believe this is going to fall into very specific categories. There's four judgments of God, and I'm going to go over them really quick, but people get confused about judgment, and they don't understand how it works. I believe it, it deals, it's dealt differently with the Christian and the non-Christian. I'm going to have four categories. The first three are for the Christian. The last one's for the non-Christian. The first, well, the first one's for the non-Christian, too, is the idea of eternity. We talked about that. How you receive the gospel determines if you're going to go to heaven or hell. Determines if you're going to have eternal condemnation or eternal glorification. It's your choice. And that is judgment. Then you have R. R stands for rewards for the Christian. The rewards of God before you enter eternity are for those who are true believers. There will come a day when God will meet you face to face. He'll meet you face to face. That, that scares me sometimes, seeing Jesus, and he's going to evaluate how I did. And he's going to render to you either crowns of gold, or silver, or wood, hay, and stubble. You will be saved, but you will... Either be rewarded or disappointed. And I believe some of Matthew 7 1 is talking about that. Don't judge because God's going to hold those principles to you on that day. And then you have this day called D. God judges right now. He will either judge you with delight or discipline. If you're his child, he is your father. Delight comes in the avenue of joy. Joy comes through obedience. 
If I obey and I please God, He gives me His Spirit full of joy. But if I disobey, if I reject what He wants me to do, if I am an obstinate son or daughter, He will discipline me. And He, he does it with sorrow and pain. He's a good dad, so He disciplines. But then there is this one, and this is the one that's not talked about too much, but it's called G, and it's for the non-believer, and by G it comes from Romans 1, right around 22 through 32, where it says God gives people over, gives them over. That's what the G is, gives over. And so when people who aren't his live their lives the way they want to, thinking they're free, I'm free to express myself in any way, look at this, I have liberty, God is remaining silent. And he's storing up wrath for that day. So his silence is the judgment. That's terrifying. While people think they're free to do whatever I want, God is letting them do that. And in scriptural reality, which is the reality, is the worst form of judgment a person can ever, ever dream of. Let me give you an illustration. Last week, my wife and I went to visit my son in Colorado. It was a six-day trip. So we left our two kids at home, Jasmine and Joseph. So Michelle gave them instructions, gave them some money, and called them constantly to see how they're doing. And they're older, so they can take care of themselves. We even let Cora over. I can't believe that. Anyhow. They were okay, but imagine if my kids were three and four years old, we locked the door, and we said, see you later, you have to fend for yourself for a whole week. And we didn't give them money, we never called, and we just let them go. We gave them over to themselves. That would be the worst thing I could ever imagine. That's what God is doing with the world right now. Oh, you guys are free to have those pride parades? You are? Okay. We, we lift up our politicians like they're gods. They think they are. And God's remaining silent because his son's on the throne. A lot of the doctors think they really know what they're talking about. They are our new gods. God remains silent. That's what's happening in our culture. Now when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged... And the same measure is going to be handed to you. I believe he's really referring to R&D for us. So, be careful. Be careful. Reason number two we need to be careful is because judging slips so quickly into judgmental. The word judging is just a verb. Like we said, it's those five definitions to evaluate, critique, even try to understand, make a make a verdict, but if we're not careful, that verb will turn into a state of being where I am judgmental. It slips so easy. Look at verse 3 and 4. Jesus says it like this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? He's saying, why do you go after that right away and pay no attention, pay no attention to the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck well, all the time there's a log in your own eye. You're a hypocrite. First take the log out. 
We are so quick to look at specks and flaws and failings. And then we look at the fleck, the, the speck, the flaw, and the failing, and we label. That's called judgmental. Truthfully, I hate this about myself. I'd say if there's something I don't like about me, I, can, I feel it all the time. When I see a person fail or when they maybe hurt me in some way or I see a mistake, I move quickly into this label area where I make, that's who they are. It's like a box you put around them and they can't get out of it. And that's called condemnation. That's what Jesus says don't do. Because this is destroy people. It's destroyed so many people over the last year. It's overwhelming. Whichever side you stand on a mask, whichever side you stand, often we're quick to see people on the other side who we disagree with as either evil or stupid. And we say that, and it's over. Instead of just disagreeing, we're allowed to disagree. Actually, conflict's a good thing because it helps us understand what's really true. It's fine to disagree, and even to argue, that's a good thing. But man, when you go to label... Once someone is labeled by you, you write them off, and they have no chance to change. How do you know if you slipped there? Here's how you know, real quick. You're quick to come to conclusions without having all the facts. Instead of doing all you can to understand someone, you dismiss them right away and say, yep, I figured them out. Another way you can tell you're judgmental is you enjoy feeling superior as you criticize. And you're happy to keep finding fault because it keeps you superior. It's putting people under your thumb. Some of you love keeping others under your thumb. Don't do that. That's being judgmental. And then the third one is you never want to extend mercy even if the other person apologizes. One writer says the danger of judgmentalism is that the moment we condemn and dismiss the person we disagree with, we are assuming a power that belongs to God alone. Oh, here's a quick question for you right now. Right now where you're at, who are you angry with or in disagreement with? Who do you feel superior over? Why do you feel that way? And I would be careful if you feel that way because that means, may mean, that your judging has turned to judgment and that's when the heart grows cold. Remember, Jesus said, you know how the end times is coming? The heart of most will grow cold. And man, if you listen to the news, that's all people do. What Jesus gives is a quick little synopsis of how to judge I love the way Jesus gives illustrations. Usually human beings, we give 40 points on how to judge. Jesus is just going, here's how you do it. Real simple, very simple. And I'm going to mirror this to Galatians 6, 1 to 8 if you want to listen to that later. But Galatians 6, 1 to 8 is Paul's version of extrapolating this. First thing is this. He says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to see. So if you want to see, it has to start with me. It's 
Specifically, when it comes to evaluating others, I need to look at myself first. Galatians 6.1 is very interesting. It says this. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may be tempted as well. He also says in verse 3, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So he's saying, be careful. If you're going to confront somebody, make sure you're okay. In other words, before you open your mouth, look in the mirror. Second thing he says is this. Love your brother. If you go to Matthew 7, here's what he says in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your enemy's eye? No, brother's eye. He keeps calling him brother. And the NLT calls him friend. And the idea is, instead of always seeing people as your enemy and a competitor, somebody who's against you, realize we're on the same team. We're helping each other along this path, not competing, not seeing who's more righteous. We're brothers and sisters. Can we help each other out? That's the key. Are people my family or are they my enemies? When you start to see people in the church or your home or even at work as your adversary, that means Satan, the adversary, is blinding you. That's dangerous. He is wanting you to hate. Even, I'd say this, even if a person's struggling with homosexuality and transgenderism, do you hate them or do you have compassion for them. It's a big difference. Because they're usually not doing that because they're trying to make Christians mad. Sometimes we think people are homosexual because they are trying to make me mad. They don't, they're not making you mad. It's, scripture says it's because they're blind. And if you went to the local Speedway store and saw a blind man keep running into the door, you don't say, what's wrong with you, you idiot? You open the door. Help them out. Help them out. Then the third thing, after you see clearly, and this is where I think verse 6 comes in, is don't be destroyed by the deceit of sin, because people are, verse 6 says, don't give the dogs what's sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. Pigs are the unclean, dogs are those who can't stop their, what I would call, disgusting habits, and there's people out there like that. Don't tolerate it. What I mean by that is don't celebrate with them. Don't just say, you know, they can do what they want to do. In your mind, separate from that. Don't be part of it. Because what Satan wants you to do is to say, you know, I'm just going to jump right in there. Galatians goes on and says this, Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So you could say, in, a, in conclusion, we live in a very tough world. The battle really is being fought here. And you know it. You know it is. You work with a lot of people who will disagree with you. 
And mainly it's because they have no fear of God. This passage tells us to be careful. Be careful how we judge others. Be careful how we treat others. But judge nonetheless. Over the years, there's been a catchy little statement that's tried to say how we are to relate to the unbeliever. And it's, a lot of people love it because it's really nice. It's nice. Some people say it was written by Francis of Assisi, but it wasn't. It's, nobody knows who it was, but it goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And I just want to say, words are necessary. Words are necessary. That's why the gospel's a message. You have to proclaim it. It's like a seed that when somebody believes it, it enters into their soul and it grows to eternal life. If you don't say anything, that seed won't be sent. It is necessary. So, judge not. Or, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. So take the log out of your eye. And then you can see clearly. 